Hello. In episode 33, season 2 of Airs for Architecture, I spoke with Ben Derbyshire, chair of HTA and immediate past president of REBA, the Royal Institute of British Architects, about his recent book, Home Truths, published in 2022 by Hatch Editions. When I took my position at RIBA, it was actually quite a scary job. You're very much in the limelight, and there are some people for you and a lot of people against you. And the understanding that we are essentially in a place which is political, that is to say, in our work and in the buildings that we are responsible for, expressions of political outcomes, political outcomes that we may not ourselves have created, and indeed that we may not ourselves agree with. But essentially, our work is the outcome of a political expression. So, you know, we we can't duck that proposition, and we can't duck the morality that goes with that. A is for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to another episode of A is for Architecture. I'm talking today to Ben Derbyshire, architect and writer. Um, Ben, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself a little more fully than that? Okay. Um, well, it's great to be here. Thank you very much indeed for having me and for featuring my book, Home Truths. So my day job is to be the chair of HTA Design LLP, which is a 250-strong uh, multidisciplinary practice with studios in London, Edinburgh, Manchester, and Bristol. Um, I'm a commissioner at Historic England, which is an increasing uh, um, involvement for me um, with various different um, uh, and fascinating roles for them. Um, and I suppose the other significant thing to mention is that I'm a past president of the RIBA. I, I, I sat in that hot seat um, between uh, 2017 and uh, 2018 and 19. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah, I thought, I mean, obviously, I think people will know you quite well as being the RIBA president. Um, and also, obviously, as leading HTA, which you've done for many years, um, since the 19... Well, I, I joined HTA as a part one student. It was called Hunt Thompson Associates then, um, uh, just about four years after Bernard Hunt and John Thompson founded the practice, whilst they were still studying architecture at Cambridge. So I joined in 1973. So um, this year marks my 50th in the organization, which, as I say, has um, changed in nature somewhat, although it's always had a focus on designing um, mostly residential places. Right. And residential at scale, if you're, I mean, obviously working with, I I assume, both commercial and local authorities slash social housing providers. Yes. Well, we we started life um, when I joined as a shopfront practice in Parkway, Camden Town. And most of our clients were, you know, what I guess were then the, you know, the um, uh, urban pioneers of um, uh, of Camden Town. I mean, Camden Town took off um, as a great place to live once the um, steam marshalling yards um, of Euston uh, disappeared and gave way to diesel and electric propulsion and made the environment possible to live in. Um, and so it was kind of in the middle of a burgeoning period of um, gentrification, I suppose. And our early clients were um, musicians, artists, uh, filmmakers, and so on, who were doing up houses in and around. Um, so we started always, um, you know, working for housing clients, 
And when we came to mass housing, and our first projects were um, for housing associations and local authorities, and for the local authorities in particular, we wanted to replicate that um, relationship with uh, our, our clients um, by using techniques of social research in order to create a, a basis for communication with um, very large numbers of people um, uh, of a kind which related, at least in some way, to the intimate relationships we had with our um, first housing clients. I see. So there's 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 it's sort of been a a development of a a technique, shall we say, of social engagement to produce because because as you mentioned at the beginning, there's this excellent book that you've written, Home Truths, um, Hatch Editions, uh, published this year. This year, isn't it? Yeah, only we published in January. Yeah, published in January, which has a great focus on two two things. Obviously, HTA's work and your reflections on it as a as a senior practitioner uh, of long standing and and as a as a a guide i suppose or president of the RIBA but also on the idea of of um common values of ordinary people in the articulation development of meaningful sustainable architecture housing architecture is that fair, is that uh, fair? well um, it's it is an important theme uh, but I think I'll go back a step and, and say why I wrote it. Yes, please. Um, I wrote it because, uh, well, 50 years um, as uh, uh, an architect specialising in, in housing and, and placemaking, um, a phrase corned, by the way, by one of our founding partners, um, Bernard Hunt. Um, and I wrote it because uh, I, I've, I felt the necessity for providing young practitioners with some sort of a, a framework based on the invaluable experience that I've had, which kind of picks up from the beginning of the decline of the profession's influence in the, in the um, 1970s, um, and has now reached a point of, of kind of maximum dislocation, disorientation, and uh, and for me, you know, the almost universally held belief that the housing market um, is dysfunctional. And, you know, on the left and right, everyone is deeply concerned about our ability to deliver high quality housing. And for me, um, I wanted to establish, first of all, a reflection on the history, um, but then uh, an, some ideas about the future basis on which um, the profession's planning and architecture can positively influence outcomes in this vital field. And um, a, a stimulus for all of this, I'm, I'm going to quote from um, actually the first chapter, the first page of the first chapter, um, where Raphael Moneo, um, who I, I went along um, while I was president of the RIBA, um, to the inaugural John Soane Memorial Lecture um, at the Soane Museum. And he said, today, social housing is perhaps the most neglected architectural field, abandoned to market forces without any concern to develop new approaches. The utopian go goals that were still alive in the recent past are now definitively gone. And for such a distinguished architect to be making such a radical statement, um, potentially immensely disheartening for those embarking on the profession, um, there was a, there was another um, uh, quote which I didn't include in the book. Um, uh, Sir David Chipperfield, 
said not so very long ago that um, involvement in the design of housing should be of only uh, academic interest to any self-respecting architect. So I thought, well, this isn't good enough. Um, I, I, I want to try to create a construct, an understanding, a way of looking at what our potential contribution is to improving people's lives through the design of places and housing in such a way as to motivate people to be uh, enthusiastically involved for the future. That involved, for me, uh, you know, setting out some of the, the history. I mean, going back into the 19th century and the, and the social reformers um, and the battle between, you know, the market forces driving the way we plan the places that we live um, and the reformers' understanding that it was a question of enlightened self-interest to provide well-designed environments for um, workers to live in, um, and, and then that being taken up ultimately um, in the post-war years especially um, it, with um, the national provision of uh, both planning and, the, and, and, and uh, council housing. So I've, I've been into all of that uh, historical um, background for um, young practitioners um, in order to provide, well, I prepare some common ground between the way I think and, and you know, the, the first chapter, Lessons from Utopias, five, um, you know, movements from the 20th century, which I think create the zeitgeist, the platform for where we begin now at the beginning of the 21st century. And then I go on beyond. So back to your question, mm -hmm. um, the relationship between the consumer of housing and the providers of housing, um, you know, despite our enthusiasm for so-called community architecture in the early years of my uh, practicing life, um, and despite, you know, quite a bit of theoretical understanding around this, you know, Sherry Austin's ladder of engagement uh, and all of that, you know, there's still a long way to go um, uh, in order to uh, create a, a, a real basis for a meaningful relationship between consumers and providers um, of housing, um, you know, in the ways that, you know, so many other industries, you know, are routinely doing. Yes, I think that's a really clear um, description of it. And, and do you think David Chipperfield was being ironic? <laughs> well, I can only hope. <laughs> I tell you what. So another quote I'll give you. Because Raphael Moneo, you know, you can't but agree with Raphael Moneo. Like, uh, as you were saying, you know, housing is the issue of our age. I mean, if I mean, we've got other ones. Obviously, we've had COVID and obviously we've got health inequalities and various. But it all you know, it's it's the kind of diamond tip cutting edge of inequality is yeah. housing. Couldn't agree more. Um, well, look, I, th I, I don't think he was being ironic, actually. Um, but to clarify my understanding of what he must have meant is that the means of delivery um, is so complicated and has been so hijacked by um, the profit motive um, you know, and stripped of its value by the speculation um, that exists, particularly in um, the purchase and selling of land, which is the very underpinning of being able to provide people with good places to live, um, that it is actually extremely difficult to do a good job. Uh, but, you know, so my, my book really 
is a cry of nil desperandum. Mm. Um, you know, there there are approaches, and um, at, at the same time as there are multiple crises. You know, the crisis of inequity, as you say, um, the crises in health uh, and and well being, the crisis in affordability, the crisis of lack of supply of how these are multiple crises, and another crisis, which of course is the emptying out of our town centres. Um, so, you know, these are uh, fundamental problems that uh, lie between us in creating equity and social well-being for people. And my argument is that as an antidote to what I regard as being, you know, the post-war decline in the role of the profession, is to reassert um, uh, the opportunity for us to influence better outcomes um, and to continually argue that point um, until... Uh, somebody listens. No accounting, as I say, in, in the management of my business. Um, there's no accounting for the benefits of repetition. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, you, you made a... When you were elected the president in 2016, you stated that you were going to build upon the work of your predecessor in sort of re-engaging practice with everyday life. Now, that's not quite exactly what you said, but I was just reading it before we started recording, and then I lost the link, because I'm always losing links somewhere, um, uh, about what you intended for, for, this, for this particular role. Because I think one of the things that it strikes me, and this, this, this difference between Raphael Manea and David Chipperfield's perspective on these things, as you say, I, I, I suspect there's subtlety within that radical, that that sort of um, jangling comment from Chipperfield. But but it seems to me that when you when you were elected Reba president and this book and the work of your practice, um, the practice which you head, um, is very much trying to re imbue the profession of architecture with a moral or ethical perhaps is. Moral makes people's skin prickle, but ethical responsibility, which seems in many ways across the latter half of the 20th century and into the first years of the 21st to have been abandoned. I remember doing a talk when I was uh, about five, uh, about 10 years ago now, I think, and a, a, a head of school from a leading architecture uh, school in the UK actually said in front of a room full of packed students that they didn't think that architecture had a moral response, you know, an ethical duty. Okay, well, um, I want to respond to some of that. Um, first of all, I think I, I felt a skill, skin prickles um, uh, on the question of morality, but really only when, um, you know, people don't like your brand of morality. Um, it's incredibly important to take a moral position, it's, it seems to me. I think uh, that the lesson of the decline of the profession, and I'm sorry to keep saying that, but we have to recognize that a very small percentage, percentage of the built environment has anything much to do with um, our contribution. Um, and mass housing, especially speculative mass housing, um, you know, is completely untouched um, you know, by professional practice um, pretty much as, as, as we know it. Anyway, so my proposition there is that the profession has essentially marketed itself into a corner. Um, and when I talk in my practice about marketing, I don't mean uh, 
you know, showing off. I don't mean, you know, glossy uh, um, public relations. I don't mean any of that. I mean anticipating the needs of society by um, equipping yourself to meet them ahead of when society understands that that, that requirement is upon them. And uh, for me, it, it's, it's not just a moral question. It's, it's, it's a question of uh, enabling society to benefit from the skills that people like you are equipping young professionals with. And uh, what we have to do is create circumstances, you know, in education and in practice um, uh, and an understanding amongst the providers of housing and the policymakers um, that uh, um, uh, govern the providers of, of housing, um, you know, that, that, that brings us more into the picture, that, mm -hmm. that creates a relevant contribution for the profession to make. Now, so we've got to move. Um, and, and I think it's completely wrong where, you know, I've always um, uh, riled at the, the idea that our job is to educate society. Our job is to anticipate the needs of society, educate ourselves, um, equip ourselves with the necessary uh, um, skills and resources um, to meet those needs. Now, um, back to the question of politics. Um, when I took my position at the... Um, RIBA, it's actually quite a scary job. You're very much in the limelight, and there are, there are some people for you and a lot of people against you. And the understanding that we are essentially uh, in a place which is po political, that is to say, we in, in our work and in the buildings that we are responsible for, expressions of political outcomes political outcomes that we may not ourselves have uh, created and indeed that we may not ourselves agree with. Um, but uh, essentially, our work um, is the outcome of a political expression. So, you know, we, we can't duck that proposition and we can't duck the morality that goes with that. Um, so I completely disagree you know, I, uh, with whoever it was who said to your audience of presumably students, you know. There, there young, is young, impressionable students, yeah, I know. <laughs> exactly. No, it's very important to, to understand that we have a contribution to make and work hard um, to be able to, uh, to make it. I think this is, yeah, I mean, I, the, the, this idea of the anticipation of needs is, um, it's really great to hear it because one of the things I've noticed as, a, as an educator in architecture is that <clears throat> we still... As a, as a profession, the way I put it is that we walk backwards. We're always looking to the past. <laughs> um, you know, we're still referencing books that were written in the 1920s as um, relevant to the context now, which is, which, is ra which is radically absurd. And you can't imagine any other serious profession doing so. I mean, if medicine was still referencing stuff they were doing in the 1920s, like sawing people's legs off with giant saws and, um, you know, injecting people with tuberculosis for kicks. I don't know. I don't know what they did in the 1920s, but that probably wasn't that good. Um, then, then, you know, but, but instead this idea of anticipating needs. But how do we do that? How is that done? Like, how does one go about anticipating needs as a profession when particularly in relation to the to the funding of the profession, the way the, the business of architecture operates? There's very little money up front. It's all, you know, the actual 
commercial model doesn't... Well, on, first of all, you, 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 a couple of, if not several points there, but I mean, just on the, on, on the question of looking backwards, I mean, I, that's why uh, even before I get to my Maneo quote, I, I'm on Minu Masani and his, I, I've always thought, very, very witty proposition you know, that in the end, all the isms become wasms, <laughs> which I've always loved. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and also that, you know, the, the, the obsession with, with um, uh, stylistic loyalties um, in the profession is just a ludicrous idea. I mean, um, and that's quite handy as, a, as the uh, um, president of the RIBA to be able to say, well, I'm a complete Catholic when it comes to you know tastes I you know I I you know I I, I can love traditional architecture just as much as I, as I can love good modern architecture it really doesn't bother me at all because actually there's something much 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 more important and this comes on to your point about anticipating needs you know um, we, we have to uh, so um, our practice uh, as Hunt Thompson as it was then uh, we were the first, and I suspect only practice ever, to set up our, uh, our own social research subsidiary. Um, it, it was called uh, Urban Social and Environmental Research, which um, spells user as an acronym. Um, uh, did I say? Anyway, never mind. Um, it spells user um, as an acronym, not an anachronism. <laughs> as an acronym. Um, uh, and far from being an anachronism, I mean, it was the fundamental means by which we, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, replicated the individual relationship we had with private clients who wanted us to make nice homes for them out of Victorian terraces, by and large, um, uh, to um, a basis on which we could understand the needs and aspirations of large populations of people who were of a, from a completely different background, both to ourselves uh, and to our previous clients, mostly working class people. Um, and, you know, for me, you know, there's incredibly important lessons in all of that. First of all, you do learn. You do learn what, it, what matters to people. Um, and, and you learn, moreover, that what matters to people most are in common, um, you know, the fundamental things for a good life. Um, they are not aesthetic questions. They are not preferences for things that look as if they were built in the 18th century or indeed were, in, you know, the outcomes of modernism. Nothing to do with it at all. It's all to do with enabling people to have a good life, you know, with things like, um, you know, the, the ability to live healthily um, uh, and to access work um, and to travel affordably um, mm. and to have space and adaptability for their children to grow and develop in their home and do their homework and all of that stuff. Um, that's what really matters to people. Um, and uh, when we were able to evidence that and quantify it, then we had a basis for um, making the projects that we did in mass housing. Now, to be honest with you, it was a bit of a golden era that. It was an era when um, local authorities were still investing large amounts of time and money in renovating their housing stock. And, you know, when I say that the housing market is broken and almost everybody um, understands that from the left and the right, you know, the fact of the matter is that local authorities are hardly able to spend any money in a significant way at all um, on housing their citizens now. Um, and that's another reason I wrote the book, you know, this must change. 
And when it changes, we must, you know, be in a position to understand that it's possible to anticipate the needs of the people that we are trying to provide for and that there are techniques for doing so. That's, um, but you, one of the things that strikes me reading your book is that there is, even though you say the, the, what people want is to be able to live a good life, are there, as an architect, for architects, are there, in, in your long career and in the work of the urban social and environmental research, you know, HDAs, kind of um, foundations within uh, community engagement participation. Are there or don't aesthetics and materials and participatory practices, don't they also, aren't they instrumental to the way that people understand these things? I is it really that irrelevant? I mean, if you stick people in... I'm not saying it's irrelevant. I'm just saying... If you stick them in Robin Hood gardens, it kind <laughs> of makes them depressed. Well, so, if you you say, in... so you say that, but I mean, Richard Rogers, of course, asserted that the demolition of... Uh, Robin Hood Gardens was um, at, at about the same level as demolishing the um, the Georgian Crescents of Bath. <laughs> so not everybody agrees with you about that. But um, the residents did. I mean, 85% of the residents wanted it knocked down. Yeah, okay. And it, in it, and it is being knocked down. And, and Historic England, of which I am now um, a commissioner, uh, refused to list it. So, I mean, I think there is a shared view about all of that, um, a, a consensus anyway, despite the particular views of some in the profession, um, yeah. such as Rogers. Anyway, um, no, I don't get me wrong. Um, uh, beauty matters. Um, and I, funnily enough, I've just been writing about this because, uh, you know, we're keen to try and influence the next government to understand these things um, properly. Um, but, you know, I think the Vitruvian proposition about beauty um, is, is fundamental. Um, you know, that, that uh, commodity, firmness and delight um, are in equal measure necessary in order to create beautiful outcomes. And, and if you talk about a beautiful life, um, you know, you're talking about ways in which people can live, you know, with nature, with each other, in spaces um, uh, and conveniently, you know, you're, and it's appropriate to talk about a beautiful life, um, you know, in which uh, the physical artifacts that surround it are also beautiful. But for me, the most important thing is the life, not the artifact. Um, and you, of course, the artifact should be beautiful. Um, the problem is that uh, the, um, I think the, the current uh, policymaking in this area, slightly hijacked by um, people of a kind of reactionary frame of mind, um, you know, uh, with the inevitable proposition that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, um, you know, have, have plumped for a version of beauty which, you know, is not only 1920s, I think we're talking about 1720s, um, you know, as the origin of, of their um, ideal. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, it isn't like that. It was never like that. And it, and, and it never will be. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that, that's why, you know, uh, you know, beauty is much, much, much more complicated as I was quoted as saying recently in the AJ, um, than simply um, giving the, the public the proposition of choosing between something that looks like it was built in the 18th century um, and something that looks like it was built in the middle of the 20th century. It's, mm. that's, that, that is a, a completely misleading proposition. Yeah. I mean, I, I went to Poundbury a while ago. I, ha I, I happened upon it. It was brilliant. Obviously, it was because it was extraordinary. Um, but it's like 
a, a sort of strange historicism plus SUVs and with <laughs> And with no horse shit everywhere, because this is the thing that no one like, you know, you look at the Georgian squares, they must have been, you must have been ankle deep in the stuff. So it's kind of, well, it's true, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's the great horse, the the great horse muck crisis of the late 1800s. I mean, it was a genuine, I mean, it's funny. So we've got this very kind of pristine idea of what that is. And then we try and replicate this kind of pristine and essentially suburbanite ideas. And again, I have... I'm uh, very Catholic in my tastes with regards to the architecture, but it is quite a funny one. I, how has the pre- how has the profession started to to, to recognise this? So obviously, an HTA, and you see this in other practices. I've spoken to Alex Elia May, and I've spoken to various other people who are involved in that kind of New London vernacular, that kind of brick-like um, mid-rise kind of things. Is this the way that the profession is starting to? represent or um reflect on these issues is it is it finding a kind of common ground between public appetite um volume house builders who for all of their uh, um all of their challenges are producing products that sell which is more than can be said for a lot of architectural practice <laughs> well Come on. I mean, uh, the volume house builders um, manage to sell what they build because they build so little. Um, you know, they create a, a, a desperate imbalance in uh, supply and demand, and um, you could almost sell anything. And I think they've proved that um, uh, perfectly well. Um, no, I don't quite agree with you on this. Um, uh, elsewhere in the book, I'm so glad I've written this book because I've kind of, you know, I, I, it's, it's been my opportunity opportunity towards the end of a career to think it through yeah what we have uh in our practice and i think is increasingly widely understood um is that success lies for designers planners and designers in um uh, in in housing uh, and generally actually um is that you need to become what we call for shorthand designers in industry that is to say um, designers who understand the the um, industrial complex um, that is delivering, um, but also understand it in such a way that um, you know it's increasingly able to meet um, the the demands that society and the challenges, the crises, are placing upon us. And for me, uh, you know, examples of that and architects love examples from the motor car industry for some reason but if you take somebody like Andre Lefebvre who designed the 2CV and then also the uh, the wonderful uh, Citroen DS um, <gasps> the most beautiful car in the world precisely although actually it was a sculptor that made its shape um, but anyway um, it was it was Andre Lefebvre who, who you know created the uh, technical underpinnings um, they did they were able to do that because they understood the means of production, and in particular, advances in means of production that were um, en- enable radical improvement. You know, the, famously, the, the shell of the Mini had all its seams welded on the outside, not the inside, and you know that for all of that. And um, the lesson that we're learning from um, industrialized production of housing in HTA is that you know it is the only way, the only place that we're able to meet what was at one time. Um, you know, the, the government's industrial strategy 
um, targets before they were scrapped um, by um, Cameron. Um, and, you know, those targets were to um, um, double the speed of provision, halve the cost, and halve the amount of embodied carbon in the um, built product that we make. Now, we're only able to do that because we've developed relationships, as many other practices have in, in different spheres, um, with producers. Um, and we have learned, we've understood the means of production sufficiently to be able to deliver our expertise, which is an expertise based on an understanding of human need, to deliver housing. We are not the technical um, innovators, but we are able to work closely um, with technical innovators, people who design factories, design production lines um, that make housing. We're able to work with them in such a way as to um, produce um, a successful housing, housing product. Now, that's what we call being designers in industry. And um, it's again, I think you know the new London vernacular was a was a was a was a you know a very perfectly reasonable attempt at a an, an acceptable aesthetic that fits into the you know the streetscape um, of London. Um, actually, it has a massive problem. Its massive problem is um, that it requires um, brick to be hung off um, frames um, with a gap between the layer of brick on the structural frame, which is increasing with the requirement um, to uh, improve the um, rates of insulation. Um, so these buildings are all struggling to hold up brick skins, um, which are now about a half a meter away um, from the means of support with massive steel angles. So th the problem with this is that it results in an enormous amount of embodied carbon, first of all, in the brick, but also at every slab edge, every story height, um, huge stainless steel angles, uh, which are very expensive to make and very um, energy um, consuming to make um, in order to hold them up. So the message I'm trying to give is <clears throat> that there are means of production which are low energy, um, which involve making, making the, um, the product um, in comfort, in factories, um, and de delivering them efficiently without thousands of separate, you know, white van <laughs> um, uh, movements <clears throat> from separate factories to individual sites um, uh, is the solution yeah. to um, effective delivery of low energy uh, housing um, at, a, at a at scale and can be done decoratively if that's what people want. Yeah. So there's this idea here as far as I can see, which is that this responsiveness that this for these means of production, this this um, uh, mechanized production of housing would enable. Um, and it would le obviously lead to much, uh, potentially lead to bespoke, the possibility of a bespokeness, yeah. which, yeah. Is, which is really fascinating. Yeah. But it's not just that aspect of architectural production that you address in the book and that is problematic for the pro profession. I mean, if we're trying to make architecture that is helps people live good uh, lives in which they are content, then there's also all these other systems within the process of architectural production, planning, 
um, the, the process of design itself, which still remains a very rarefied activity, um, procurement, of course, um, and then broader um, uh, scale things like urban planning strategies and town planning strategies, which the public have no access to. Mm. Um, I mean, the planning portal remains, despite the fact it's 2023, remains one of the most difficult to navigate um, public interfaces possible. And, and I don't think probably unintentionally. Um, and then, and then you know, and I've said this before to, to others on this podcast, you know, if you're trying to do a one-story extension for your kitchen at the back of your house in Penge, you'll have a planning officer all over you like white on rice. But if you're building 400 units of student housing in a on the edge of a conservation area, apparently there's very little they can't do um and very very well very little uh, con- well i think so, so it's like it's like how do you yeah. how does the profession help people understand how the hell any of this is happening how do we dis- disambiguate the, com- the the procedural complexities how has hta done it and and yeah how has well we i mean I, you know there's early days of, of uh, community architecture in mass housing taught us how to do it and to be perfectly honest with you um you know uh, generally speaking with the right kind of client and the right kind of resources which we don't always get um you know it's always possible um mm-hmm. to do it and i've written extensively on this not in the book as it happens um you know um uh but it's perfectly possible and mm-hmm. you know it's probably a subject for a whole separate podcast but it does involve um, uh, empowering and enabling um, the consumers um, of of your work, um, regular engagement with them in a transparent and open and fair way, um, the offering of options to them, including, by the way, the option to do nothing so that they understand very well, um, you know, what the implications are of simply resisting. Yeah. Um, uh, and the, conversely, the opportunities um, for them of engaging, and in the end of the day, a ballot. You know, you don't have to have this if you don't want it. Mm. And if you, if you know, if there's a demonstrable majority, off we go, and everybody understands that, and it's incontrovertible. So you know, there are there are there are other aspects of this, but overall, the message I'm trying to give is that uh, in the right circumstances, with the right expertise and the resources, it's always possible to do it. I mean, I think one of the innovations that the Labour Party, if it gets in, might like to think about is. You know, uh, um, in addition to the necessity of ballots, which we're all used to, and we've been campaigning for at HTA for many years on estate regeneration, um, we should always have ballots, um, you know, around major regeneration projects on brownfield sites, because it's the people surrounding them um, that are immediately affected by them. And the corollary of that is that it would make developers think um, about the benefits for people living around um, major uh, regeneration projects um, uh, uh, and actually urban extensions as well mm-hmm. um, uh, you know pe- people are always concerned about the new um, but in particular they're concerned about the way the new impacts upon the existing so you know there's always a huge concern about you know well obviously traffic is a big one but it's also you know access to local schools the health service and all mm-hmm. of those sorts of things um, where they, they they fear a negative impact upon um, the already threatened services that they um they, they uh, wish from uh, um, the infrastructure around them. Yeah. 
I think that's a really interesting idea, sort of a radical democratic approach to foreground any form of architectural production. How does the architect work in this? In, in all of these frameworks you're talking about, in all of the 10 chapters in your book, there's this, um, well, in the, in, the, in, the, in the middle eight chapters, shall we say, there is, uh, I, as I read it, a kind of emphasizing of the uh, the voices of of um, the citizen, yeah. the consumer, uh, the the consumer. Uh, that's an interesting word. I would have thought when I was at university that would have been that would have got you a smack on the wrist. I think. I think we use <laughs> yes, quite. <laughs> it's quite an interesting. It, you know, word. It, it why do you choose that word? It would. Oh well, because it's the right word. Um, it wouldn't have got you a slap on the wrist at Google um, or Apple, no. um, would it? I mean, you, you think about the consumer um, and anticipating the consumer's needs. And, you know, neither of us um, would have anticipated, um, you know, that we would become entirely dependent on, a, on an iPhone, would we? Um, because, you know, 10 years ago, I would have no idea what it's possible to do with one. Um, so it's, this, it's that point about anticipating people's needs and aspirations and such before they get to it um, uh, themselves. That, that's the critical thing. But it is the consumer of, uh, and uh, there's a, 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 lot, a lot of um, uh, the, the section, uh, the, the chapter on uh, let the people decide, as it's called, is actually not so much about, um, you know, the engagement in the development process, but it is about a better relationship between consumers and housing. Um, and prop tech, um, and the opportunity for, um, you know, uh, uh, digital technologies to, and, and Rob, just about the only thing that Robert Jenrick got right, in my view, in his planned uh, um, reforms uh, of the planning system, um, was digitizing um, access um, to decision making um, and, uh, and influencing the planning process for, uh, for the consumers uh, of it. Um, but there are all sorts of, of other ways in which um, uh, the, the digital economy can improve the relationship between consumers uh, and the places where they live. All sorts of ways. Huge, huge improvements um, uh, are around the corner. And again, you know, I think the, the profession has got to equip itself with an understanding of what that amounts to. Yeah. Sort of the bimification of planning where various people can feed in well it's not it's you know the sharing economy for example um uh you know we we now share um electric bikes and scooters around town don't we um but you know we, we will soon be able to share um energy um you know between our our homes and our cars and each other's homes and each other's cars um you know and we'll be able to share access to um, you know, expensive tools and equipment because it'll all be, um, you know, available uh, online. I just think um, uh, the the opportunities for improving lives are immense. Mm -hmm. And by the way, um, you know, the creation of of consumer pull on the housing market um, so that a better performing product becomes more attractive, um, and therefore uh, suppliers become um, motivated. Uh, to design better performing products. Um, at the moment, the imbalance in supply and demand means this, um, that the industry can sit on its hands um, because they can sell everything they build. 
How, how does the design process, as we currently understand it, um, respond to this? I think it's a really, because I think it's wonderful. I mean, this idea of consumer pull, that's a very nice phrase. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go in back into crits in about 15 minutes and I'm going to use that <laughs> on the students because oh, they're dear. creating, because they're creating wonderful, imaginative designs, but at the same time, there isn't this concept it would seem in design itself, as we understand it as architects, how you do design, that is very future orientated. We do a lot of precedent study. We do a lot of walking backwards. Uh, we do a kind of a lot of stealing ideas um, or replication or, you know, quoting or whatever you want to call it. Um, but but actually, how do you, how do you take a profession like architecture and future orientated and then as a sort of final part of that how do you how do you start teaching this how would you see ben derbyshire ex-reba president and head of a massive architecture company how would you like to see this articulated within design i'd get i'd get the students out doing live projects and the starting point for that would be to obtain their brief by asking um, um people on the street or in neighborhoods that need renovation um, of one sort or another, um, you know, what their needs and aspirations are, and then, um, you know, doing their best to supply answers and listening to the reaction. I mean, that's what I did when I was a student. When I was at Birmingham School of Architecture, which had a, you know, a, a very sort of technical approach, I was, I was out there in Saltley and places like that, um, you know, um, working with community groups. And then I left and went to Cambridge. And I, I went to Cambridge not particularly because it was... Um, you know, aspirational to be um, at a, an Oxbridge college, but because there was no curriculum at all. <laughs> so I was able to spend my entire fifth year in Spitalfields um, trying to figure out, you know, what, what the future for a place like that, which is full of delicate heritage on the one hand and a, a pretty robust means of clothes production as it was then um, uh, on the other, that's back in 1974 five or six you know a long time ago but um uh, so no i i mean i think it's it's it, it's placing ourselves um in in um, real life situations and 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 trying to meet people's real needs okay i think we'll leave it there that was fantastic thank you so very much ben i've really really enjoyed speaking to you and and thanks for the book can I ask you a question before we part? Oh, my days. Yes, go on. Well, I'm interested to know. I mean, I wrote, I mean, I wrote this book um, because I, I wanted young aspiring architects to, as I say, understand that, you know, there's an interesting future in anticipating needs and aspirations. And, and it's, it's all deliverable and it, it is moral and ethical and necessary. Um, uh, and I find actually so far, I mean, I, I presented it to the London School of Architecture only this week. Um, I, I'd like to know what you think about whether and how it might resonate with uh, the young minds that you teach. I am I'm constantly amazed. It's the privilege of my, my, my position in education. Um, I'm constantly amazed at how good they are, that they want they want to be good. And this is something they, they want to do. They're very conscious of, you know, Gen Z are very conscious of their identity 
uh, who they are and having that respected, which um, which means that they get that, that, that they're very conscious, as far as I can tell, not universally, I'm talking in very broad brush here, but very conscious of the of the lack of justice at the point that it intersects with them and their groups. Mm. And it's very clear that a book like yours, Home Truth, with its great focus around housing and housing justice, you might call it, or spatial justice, is re- is very relevant. It's very important. And what I what I like about the book particularly is that you have a you have skin in the game, because you're a practitioner, because you've spent a long time thinking about this, and then, as you say, got into the hot seat, which must be must be bloody hard being rebuilt. <laughs> Uh, but so so it's not an academic book in that sense no it's not it's not kind of an abstract kind of hypothesizing um but it's also not um but it's it's also not playing that kind of i don't know when 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 you've got skin in the game when you've got a dog in the fight there's a kind of imperative to the way that things are written which is kind of exciting and enticing and i think that that mm. this, this book has um and it's also not written in architectural jargonese hieroglyphs so you can get into it so so that yeah the, the way i see it and the thing that excites me because i lead the, the masters here at kent school of architecture and um the thing that excites me is just that appetite they've got an appetite for the common good and i think it's i think it's really exciting what worries me is that we as an as a profession as an educational profession in architecture don't reflect on what that means in terms of the way that we formulate um, design projects. The way we've got this new restructuring of the education to to enable broader access, but it hasn't really. And this is because the ARB doesn't have this, as far as I can see, doesn't seem to have this kind of um, competence. But doesn't really start driving forward thematically record <sighs> changes like we should be focused on housing like housing should be a substantive component of what we completely agree yeah and we should be looking at and we should be looking at architects should be trained in urban planning yeah i agree agree with that too good well i'm encouraged by that thank you very much thank Um, you very much i'll um, i'll try and go on tour (laughs) go on tour yeah go on get yourself a bus Get yourself a drinks cabinet, go on tour. Thank you ever so much, Ben. I really enjoyed it. Okay, thank you very very much indeed. Jolly good stuff. Thank you to Ben for the chat, the book, the time and the work. Please see the podcast descriptions for links to the book, to Ben at HTA, and to a wee New London Architecture interview he gave in 2022. Don't forget to share this episode wherever you go. And thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.